0: Post-modern and post-Christian are both terms that the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The
1: world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live it's by It's almost God.
0: like raising a white flag and saying, Ah, oh, it's all the secular people's fault and so no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic.
1: How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Mark is here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. I am beyond Excited to be here with you guys again today because we are in the middle of one of the most incredible podinar series that I've ever had the privilege of hosting on the Story Church pod- podcast. I'm sorry, uh, podcast. And I'm here with Maxwell Aka. It's been a few weeks since we've been able to get live, uh, have a live sit down, and uh, we're gonna do that today. We're gonna move into really what are going to be the final two episodes in this season. In today's episode, we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about the age-old tension of old versus new, nostalgia and suspicion of the new. And how this natural human tendency, because we humans, we're creatures of habit, right? We don't like change. This natural human tendency of old versus new uh, tends to drive the worship wars and the assumptions coming to the worship wars and the way we interpret the Bible <laughs> when it comes to the worship wars much more than the Bible itself. So we're going to talk about that a little bit in today's episode. Um, but before we do that, what I want to do is take a moment, uh, first of all, to thank everyone who's been listening. The feedback that uh, I've been receiving over the season has been just beyond incredible. Uh, thank you guys. Keep the feedback coming. Also, uh, Max and I are going to be doing uh, an episode at the end, Q&A. All right. We want to answer your questions. So if there's anything that we didn't cover in the season or that maybe we covered, but not to the depth that you would have liked, um, let us know. Go on thestorychurchproject.com. You can contact me or you can just email me directly at Pastor Marcos at thestorychurchproject.com. And, uh, and send your questions there, and we will take an entire episode to do nothing but Q&A at the very end of the season. Uh, so again, thank you guys so much, but right now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hand it over to Max and say, Max, uh, welcome back, welcome back to the podcast, and um, talk to us, take us through the old versus new tension and how it speaks into this topic, this conversation that uh, that we've been having. For the last few for the last few months now it's been uh, i think we're at episode 11 now <laughs> so um i think you got to unmute just so you know and uh i'll
0: hand it over to you got it yeah i didn't realize i was muted also to anyone listening uh due to the timing of when we're recording this this is going to be the asmr episode <laughs> it's going to be really soft really really soft really really soft i hope this is picking up i'm turning up my input volume just a little bit so that we make this is, sure this is
1: basically just going to be like a mindfulness episode right? you, <laughs> can, you can just close your eyes and listen to max and just let all your troubles melt away <laughs> close your eyes
0: on the ridiculous tension between the old and the new does it make any sense no it doesn't and now you know all right let's do this let's do it. um let's do this indeed so the uh, theme text that I have has informed my thinking on this topic for a little while now um, is Ecclesiastes seven um, verse ten, and so Ecclesiastes seven ten. It's kind of this like um, this one off line. It is obviously related to everything else that comes before it and after it in the text, just like everything in scripture, it depends on its literary context. But um, Ecclesiastes 7.10, I find, does this like, that points out the absurdity. Um, It points out an absurdity about the way that people address age, address generations, the way that people tend to think intergenerationally. And I think actually, maybe the best way for me to do this would be bring up some examples, um, counter examples before I quote this. Um, yeah, sorry, before I quote the scripture itself. Um, so the Greek philosopher Hesiod, I am not sure if he's a philosopher or historian, I can't remember, I didn't write this part down. You still hearing me? Okay.
1: I'm hearing you okay. Yeah, I actually yeah, okay. never heard of Hesiod, so it's uh difficult for me yeah, to yeah. say yay or nay.
0: A Greek poet, if I I just double-checked for myself, but he has this quote speaking of young people in his time in like ancient Greece, they only care about frivolous things. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but this the present youth are exceedingly impatient of restraint. So, he's saying Young people today, like
1: boomers versus millennials, bro.
0: Yeah, it's it's the <laughs> this was young people today. I thought this was oh a yeah, oh my problem. gosh. No, this 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 is uh, an ancient problem. The I'm now trying to pull up more quotes. Um, I'm I'm having a hard time finding my quotes. Um, but like, you can go into it and find, um, just tons and tons of quotes from people throughout the centuries, literally, from ancient Greece, to like, you know, Puritan America, to all of these different eras and histories, and you will find um, like, 1000s of years worth of history of this. Okay, here we go. I I just found my my quotes, Aristotle, we all know who Aristotle is. Uh, This is in the fourth century, BC. Young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. Um,
1: This is glorious.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anne Shaw Faulkner, who is the voice behind the uh, Ladies Home Journal article that I've quoted from, uh, you know, pretty periodically talking about her anger about jazz and stuff like that. This is 1921, and therefore it is somewhat of a rude awakening for many of these parents to find that America is facing a most serious situation regarding its popular music. Welfare workers tell us that never in the history of our land have there been such immoral conditions among our young people, and in the surveys made by many organizations regarding these conditions, the blame is laid on jazz music and its evil influence upon the young people of today. So, all you'd have to really do there is take the word jazz and substitute in hip-hop and it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same panic. Um, You've got 1624, a guy named Thomas Barnes. Youth were, and and this is using a little bit of an older rendition of English, but youth were never more saucy. Yay, never more savagely saucy. The ancient are scorned. The honorable are condemned. The magistrate is not dreaded. And, you know, I could go on, there's actually more that I had that I wanted to quote. Um, I just I can't find where I wrote down all of my quotes, but there's like a, a yeah. ton of these, like, just wow. the young people are lazy, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the so the boomer millennial war is ancient. It's ancient. This yeah. is not modern. I always thought it was modern, right? Like it was, you know, like it's, it's sort of like the boomers were, like you know, the the you know the the what do they call it? At least in America, anyway. You know, the the um, the most noble generation or something like that. I remember what it, you know, like the, the ones. Who, oh, the greatest well, they, generation. It the, 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 yeah, was was it the boomers, the greatest generation, or was it the generation before them? Oh, so I don't, been, I don't even I think remember. It, I think it might have been the ones before them because it was like the I don't know. Look, the point is the guys who fought in the World Wars, you know, like the Greatest Generation, and you know, yeah. I've even seen cartoons. Of like, if Normandy Beach was stormed today with like today's you know sort of millennials in the military, they all would have turned back and went home, you know. Right. And it's like because they're not as tough as the old timers. Where it's like, wait a minute, this is, and an like a, wow, you've just opened my eyes to the fact that this has been happening.
0: This has always history. been happening. Yeah. <laughs> Th- this is a point that like, pr- like permeates human history. And interestingly, uh, the verse I mentioned, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10, addresses this very attitude, because Ecclesiastes is a book that deals with mortality, death, anxiety in, in some ways, and just the, the hard fact of we are all going to die. And so there are questions of lun- longevity that come up in Ecclesiastes, and this verse is just amazing. Because in the context of all of these people throughout history complaining that the young people are awful and everything new is awful, the biblical wisdom comes along with this verse, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And it says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And it's like, wow that that is this very challenging thing. It's saying, I need you to look at the way you're looking at your life, the way you're looking at history. And I need you to understand, you know, according to the theme of Ecclesiastes, like there's nothing new under the sun, everything that has been will been will be again, most of everything that you see is a repetition of some cycle, some pattern that is common to human history. And for you to say, the old days were better than this is like, no, you're not asking that you're not claiming that from a place of wisdom, you that is your perspective speaking that is, I mean, there was a book I read, I took a class in seminary, it was kind of cross listed with like the psych department. Um, So there was like social work and like psych students, and it was uh, death and grief in contemporary society. And one of the things that we talked about quite a lot was the idea of death anxiety, And just how much of our struggle as human beings and the problems we face in life, ultimately comes down to us not making peace with our finitude, with our mortality, with the fact that like, we will end someday, and we're passing through this world. And at some point, it starts to pass us by, and we start to fade out of it, even before the moment of death, like we are passing away from this world. And there's a lot of anxiety and stuff that we tend to not deal with that comes with that. And so the the need for control, the need to like, manipulate the world around you, or perhaps the people around you in the world, as you get into these older years of your life, the need to like make things comfortable is actually really existentially, like personally important. And but it can lead to this like carnal, I think, um impulse to m- be manipulative to be controlling to be small minded to think like the world can only be the way i need it to be because that's what i need yeah. right and and yeah. and it's obligated to give me that yeah. um and and you know i'm i'm 31 and i even find myself now looking at like my childhood and being like you know i felt more I wondered more, I experienced more awe of the world as a child. When I think about the 90s, it's not just a nostalgia trip. I mean, it is, it's definitely a nostalgia trip, but it's also me looking at my life and being like, dang, like I, I don't feel alive the same way I felt alive back then. And in some ways, I think that there's a lot of wisdom, this is just occurring to me now, but when jesus says that like you can't see the kingdom of god unless you become like a child there is something like profoundly existential in that in the sense that like you can't see the awe and wonder of god you can't see the mystery of it all you can't live with that like wide-eyed open wonder and like go to narnia unless mm. you are like a child you know mm. and rediscovering that part of yourself they say that the the creative adult is the child who survived right? Yeah. And and that is, I think, one of the big struggles is to keep the the fire and the spark of wonder alive. Um, Because in many ways, that is like, that spark is part of what connects us to God, maybe even maybe that's something we can even think about in our conversations about the image of God is like the innocent and not letting our mortality and the way that we kind of, you know, are forced to wither away by by sin and time and stuff, you know, maybe it, it's learning how to recapture that innocence. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, That's living awesome. that out. Yeah. So yeah, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, it's not me wanting to rag on old people, because there's another thing that you will encounter, which is old people who have lived and aged gracefully and have learned to be alive continuously, you know, who haven't grown bitter, who haven't grown like jaded. And that's not to, to, you know, downplay the value of people who have lived very difficult lives and who do have like, you know, worldview shaping negative experiences who are still like hanging on like there's, there's, there's room for all kinds of lived experiences. But I think that, uh, it speaks volumes when someone has been able to go through a full lifetime of experiences, and is able to live with an open heart still like mm-hmm. that is that in in and of itself is a testimony. So Absolutely. and I'll come back to that thought in a little bit. But you know, that's kind of like the big opening theme is like, what do you do with aging? What do you do with? Well, How do you how can we as Christians recognize that there are still temptations to have carnal attitudes that come with old age? And it's not just the young people are unwise. It's like sometimes the old can be unwise too, and are facing a different set of temptations, that maybe we're not uh, always cautious to guard against or warn against. Yeah, that's, that's the thought.
1: And I love what you're saying there. Because um, there's a few thoughts that come to my mind. The first one is, you know, as you were talking about um, how this battle between the older and younger generations has been spanning for <laughs> for for centuries. Um, which, as I mentioned earlier, is news to me. I thought it was a modern phenomenon. So you learn something new every day. Um, uh, and and it reminds me. This is my first thought. It reminds me of uh, some of the the uh, books that I actually uh, read when I was uh, studying theology as well. Uh, one of them I didn't read. One of them was a student in my Christian history class who made, he did a report, because you know you have to read all these books. And he chose to read a book on the history of the organ. And uh, so he he did a report on the history of the organ. and I was mind I was mind blown. I was mind blown that when, you know this this book that he read, you know, sort of tracing the history of the organ, um that when it was first introduced, the earliest iterations of the organ were first introduced into the church. Uh, it was extremely controversial extremely controversial the fights that took place were mm. insane um and if you know there's there's there were different there, different historical periods in which this happened and i can only remember two of them so so one of them was um uh back in like oh gee i can't even tell you the year because it was a very long time ago that 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 i i sat in through this book report but um uh, the, the organ has sort of was an instrument that was associated with pomp and theater. Um, and, and so when it was introduced into the church, it was kind of like, you know, how this is a worldly instrument, it was used to announce the arrival of emperors and things like that. And so it was seen yeah. as a worldly instrument sort of entering the church, there was a lot of opposition. Um, and another that I can remember, uh, was I believe, and don't quote me, you might know the particular details a little bit better than me, Maxwell, I believe there was a church in Boston, um, where, uh, there, someone was donating an organ to it. Uh, and this was way back in like, you know, the days where men wore monocles and, um, had uh, twirly mustaches, although those days have come back, I suppose, but, but, um, there was a church in America that someone was donating an organ to, and there was a huge fight over this organ. I think I think it was a rich person who like bought it and was donating it to the church. It was a huge fight, um, and and one guy was saying that uh, one one of the members of the church who was really opposing the organ was saying that uh, he would rather see all the money wasted. He would rather see this organ at the bottom of the ocean than for it to ever set foot in the house of God. It wow. is an organ, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's just really, really mind blowing because yeah. you hear the same exact arguments today. The only thing that has changed is the instrument. All of a sudden, the organ's cool. All of a sudden, you know, the organ's holy and righteous mm-hmm. and sacred, right? Um, and it's the drums that have become the, you know, the it's the yep. new organ. And um, and I saw the same exact thing as well when when dressing up to go to church was first introduced extremely Mm -hmm. controversial. And a lot of people don't realize like back in the day, most people only had the money for their work clothes, and Mm -hmm. very special, uh, uh, like maybe one dress that they would wear for special occasions. uh, And it wasn't necessarily uh, fancy, it was just cleaner than their work clothes. Um, But the rich were the ones who could dress up really nicely for parties and events and stuff. And when the middle class began to emerge, there was now the possibility Mm -hmm. that poor people could look rich you know um and so this is where the dressing up to go to church began and man the letters pastors the sermons they were preaching the way they were attacking you know like dressing up to go to church is anti-gospel and it's a mimicry of the rich and the elite and you know and the and the the vanity of this world and now you go to church if you don't dress up it's you're unholy right like it just Mm -hmm. (laughs) things switch around so anyways um and the last one that i remember was uh when john wesley Began his ministry, he would preach outdoors, and man, that was like he mm-hmm. got attacked because the belief at the time was that the sacred word should only be preached in the altar, which meant inside a inside a building, inside a church building. And so John Wesley is preaching outdoors, and the level of attacks that he got for this new thing he was doing, which really is what Jesus did. So it was kind of weird that people were right. Inside but it just goes to show you like this old versus new argument is as old as time itself. And it's clearly not driven as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's not driven by Godly wisdom. It's driven Mm -hmm. by something else. And, and when we go to scripture or we go into this conversation with this, this non-godly wisdom um, and we interpret a conversation like worship and culture from that perspective, we can sound really pious, and we can sound really holy. I mean, all of those, all of those letters and and sermons that were preached against John Wesley, preaching outdoors, or against the organs, or against dress—they all sound really holy and pious. The language is the kind of thing that you know would make a whole church shout "Amen." Um, but when you look beneath the surface, you realize like this is ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and the same thing's happening today. So, anyways. I said I was going to mention two things that your previous thoughts reminded me of, but the first one took so much time that I'm going to stop. (laughs) Just hand it back over to you. (laughs) Well,
0: it might it might come back up. It might come back up in your mind, so we'll we'll see. Go for Um, it. So, it's there's a couple things you said that actually sparked a thought for me, or kind of pointed me to a different spot in my notes. So I'll just I'll say these two related things really quickly. We have this idea in our heads that like conservative American Protestant worship is based on the Bible. And the reality is that, like, I mean, the idea of someone preaching a message about God, sure, that happens in the Bible. The idea of people praying together, sure, that happens in the Bible. And the idea of people singing together, sure, that happens in the Bible. If you simplify those concepts down, I should say oversimplify, if you oversimplify those concepts and like reduce them down to their bare minimum, it's really easy to be like, Oh, yeah, you know, um, everything we do is from the Bible. But the way that we do them, the the fact that we're sitting in pews, the format of the sermon where nobody can interrupt and ask a question, like Jesus preaching ministry, like half of the things he said were responses to interrupting questions, you know what I mean? Um, And that's just not how our sermons are formatted. The way we do prayer is not necessarily the same way that Christians in the world have done prayer. So like, especially if you are talking early church, I didn't word that very clearly, but if we're talking early church practice, so one thing people need to realize is that the way that church is done is defined very largely by the stretch of time between like, the 1600s and like 1950s, essentially, like that stretch of time. If you think about like revivalist preaching and the the big tent revival meetings, those are kind of the things that have defined what our church worship services look like, as well as like the controversies that took place in Europe during the Reformation and the years following the Reformation. Like um, one of the classes I took in seminary was... um. For, for my church history requirements was uh, the English Reformation and the rise of Puritanism. And just the way that arguments about like, where is the altar table for communion? Is it on the platform? Is it on the floor where the people are? So it's more accessible. How do people sit around it? How do you partake of the communion? Who can partake of the communion? Who can carry the stuff? Just all of these debates and all of these controversies had to do with access and had to do with what values do the worship practices communicate and a lot of it sounds foreign when you look at it in hindsight because it's so far removed from like how we approach church today how we approach like doing worship and that's because it's the time in between the reformation and now that has given us our worship practices our worship probably doesn't look anything like what was done in the bible and it it's Deluding ourselves if we think like oh there's a direct line from like what it says in scripture to like what we do today a second part of that that i think is uh you know relevant when you mention someone like the wesley's and i mentioned the reformation it's very easy for us to take for granted our english-speaking context it's very easy for us to to universalize and say like, oh, this is, I mean, we've been talking about multiculturalism, right? But I think it's very easy for us to forget, like we are in an English speaking context and that comes with a theological heritage. It's very easy for us to idealize um, Luther and Calvin and the reformers who had like a cool story. It's much more difficult to identify with the Pope won't annul my marriage to that Spanish queen. So get me out of here. I'm starting my own denomination. And I'm talking, of course, about Anglicanism, yeah. right? But when you talk about Wesley, not even that, when you talk about Ellen White, the Methodist girl, when you talk about like American holiness movement, when you talk about that, that is a that is a lineage, that is a theological heritage that goes back to Anglicanism right? Obviously, there are other influences, the influences of the whole Reformation, they come to the New World, they come to America, you know, there's Anabaptist influence, there is Calvinist influence, there is Lutheran influence, of course. But the big one, and the thing that really shapes North American society is the Church of England, right? Mm -hmm. The Methodists were just a revival movement I mean, that's reductive in a sense, but it was a revival movement of Anglican clergy. The Wesleys were Anglicans. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. And Anglicanism, we know the history. I mean, religiously informed people know the history of how Anglicanism broke off of Catholicism and kind of tried to be, I think, a halfway point between Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. Um, and that history has a lot more to do with why we worship the way we do than like, say, directly the Bible. Um, something that is worth pointing out some of the language that you and I have even used during this Podinar our series, could be a little misleading, because we've used the phrase Anglo high culture. And it's not wrong, We're, we are dealing with questions of class, we are dealing with the way that people associate certain music with certain classes. But really when it comes down to it, if you dig into the history of like what is meant by high church and low church, that is a worship war from within Anglicanism, having to do with the accessibility to participation by the common person, the free flowing nature of worship versus a very structured liturgical approach to worship. A lot of the things that Adventists rail against pre-written prayers, pre-read pre-written liturgy that is read or recited those things that we don't like that seem catholic to us are inherent parts of what high church worship means in anglicanism and the things that we are most passionate about like spontaneous prayers and being able to change the order of service a little bit to do different things like yeah most weeks we're doing this but now it's 13th sabbath and everyone's going downstairs and the sermon's shorter today and I'm going to say this long-inspired passionate prayer that I'm making up on the spot. All of that is low church worship. Mm. All of that is low church worship. Um, the most conservative, the most traditional Adventist worship service is a low, would be considered low church if you asked like a high church Anglican. And I don't think people realize that. I remember having conversations with my mom where she expressed she grew up going to PMC in, 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 on the Andrews campus, right? PMC is a beautiful church. It's got like the nice stained glass windows and like the big, big organ. And my mom thought of that context, but it's not. That is a low church context. It just, it has some of the aesthetics of the stained glass window, the organ, classical music, but like low church music, can, it's low church worship services can be lots of classical music. That's not what defines it. What defines it is liturgy you know, are you going to bust out the Book of Common Prayer or not? And how are you going to use it? Right. Yeah, those yeah. those are the things. Right. And that so is a worship. Or that even within yeah.
1: even within what we would consider within a traditionalist framework, mm-hmm. a very perhaps a very sacred um, worship service that for our mind as Adventists would be like, yeah, that that was the standard, you know, like that's how you yeah. worship again within a traditionalist framework what you're saying is if you if 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 you had an anglican analyze that they'd say oh that's 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 low church worship that's that that's not you know what i mean like is that Mm -hmm. am am i hearing you correctly
0: absolutely correctly yeah there are people who would look at what we're doing and saying like wow that's so chaotically unstructured and like (laughs) that person prayed for 25 minutes and it didn't go anywhere. And they said so many weird heretical things that contradict the church's teaching and nobody could do anything about it because you were all forced to just kneel there with your eyes closed while this person ad-libbed and talked about, you know, wh- while they verbally subtweeted a bunch of people in their life and kind of used it for gossip. Like the, so here's an interesting thing for you. Um, the point of the Reformation was for us to be biblical not just to angrily be as un-Catholic as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a difference of emphasis there. Something that I've come across in my time on TikTok, because TikTok just feeds me religion content, even though I want to see like music stuff, but whatever. Um, I've been following creators from like all kinds of different religious backgrounds. Like I'm following Mormons, I'm following Eastern Orthodox, I'm following Catholics, I'm following all kinds of different people, all kinds of different religious experiences following a handful of Jewish creators too. Um, there's this one Orthodox um, guy, TikTok Ticon, uh, who I think he's a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy from evangelical Protestantism. And one of the things that he said was difficult for him as a conservative Protestant was the prayer practices um of conservative protestantism which is to summarize make it up on the spot be spontaneous now we like the spontaneity thing we do we do like the spontaneity thing and i think that there is something valuable to it in being able to say like i'm praying i'm telling god how i actually feel in my own words i think that's incredibly valuable but he is like yeah but here's my problem i have adhd mm. i have adhd and it's hard for me to focus and I would find myself attempting to do this brain ramble at God and feel like my voice was bouncing off the ceiling because it was so unstructured. It was so unfocused, right? Um, And I think we've all had that experience of listening to someone's prayer, whether in a small group or at church and just being like, (laughs) why is it this long? And did we not read that thing Jesus said about like, don't try to convince God to listen to you with many, many words right? And so this guy, he pulls out his prayer beads, like his beads, and he's like, I love this thing, because I have ADHD, it gives me something to focus on, I can grab a bead at a time and say and say a prayer, I can say the Lord's Prayer, I can say whatever, right? Um, He's Orthodox, so I don't think the Hail Mary is necessarily a big part of their (laughs) liturgy per se. But the idea of like having a prayer. And, and having something to guide you and having a set of words to work through that's like the words are going to stay the same, no matter what. Like there is actually something that could be beneficial to people who struggle to focus during prayer and those older prayer practices, they do have a rationale behind why they're structured the way they are. But it's interesting to me to think like those prayer practices are very rigid, they are very structured, they are very strict. And yet, if you were to ask a Seventh-day Adventist about those things, uh, the very fact that I'm talking about this is probably going to make some people uncomfortable because to us, it's just way too Catholic, right? It's it's like, and and it's not just too Catholic, but it's also like, where's the spontaneity? Where's the genuineness? Where's the expression of your own heart? Where is the the true sense of where you're at in your relationship with God? But I'm like, do you hear how much of a hippie you sound like when you start talking that way? And that is traditional Adventist rhetoric. Mm -hmm. We actually traditionally place a very high value on self-expression in our worship, in our prayer. Mm -hmm. Right. We just, all all of that logic goes out the window when it comes to music. Right. Um, Yeah. So it's it's just, we we
1: have a double standard because it's like, yeah, you know, within a, even within the traditional Adventist framework, we have this very, as you said, <laughs> this very hippie-sounding approach to mm-hmm. what would be termed a liturgy, right? Um, but all of a sudden, you know, when it comes to worship uh, style, uh, we seem to flip the script and mm-hmm. say, no, we need this. We need this very strict, formulaic, mono-dimensional expression. That's the only one that's right um it's 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 like we step out of our adventist ness and back yeah. into something that we are not just to defend an idea yeah is, is that what you're saying
0: when the lang- when it comes to prayer the language of the heart matters deeply to adventists but then when it comes to music the language of the heart doesn't matter what matters is correct form Mm. Um, and that is, I think, uh, an inconsistency that has to do with the way that music has changed over the the last hundred years. You know, yeah. it it the the amount of change that has happened with the invention of audio recording, with the invention of like new types of instruments, with the cultural fusion that has come from both like the integration of minority people in the United States and and increased immigration. All of that has contributed to like massive shifts in the definition of even what music is and what it can be for people, right. And so there's been a lot of panic around that there's been a lot of conspiratorial thinking around that there's been a lot of reactionary bad takes. And why were the former days better than these, as the ESV puts it in reaction to that. So I think it's important for us to remember that, like, you know, there are certain forms of like idealization of the past that are carnal and we have to be on guard against that. And we have to take the discipleship of older people seriously enough to like give those warnings and continue to treat old people. Like they're still part of the the ongoing spiritual warfare, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. That's-
1: well, you know, one thing, just to, just to toss it in here real quickly, um, mm-hmm. because even, and, and I think this is something that the, I find it quite amusing is that even when we fight for the old ways, right? Even the staunchest Adventists among us who fight for the old ways uh, would still be looked at as liberal apostates by like the Amish, right? Like <laughs> sure, yeah, <laughs> if, exactly. if you really want to go like the old ways, I mean, they got sure. it on check, right? Uh, but the right. interesting thing is that people will talk about, you know, like, oh, we don't want to be like the world. And, and I think the difficulty that I, that I have with that, and I'd like your thoughts on this is, you know, mm-hmm. even if we were to just look at the Amish, oh, you know, we, we don't want to be like the world. So we're going to live this way. For me, it's like, but you are like the world. It's just the only difference is you're like the world from 100 years ago but right. you're still like the world. You know, it's it's not like an angel came from heaven and said, here's some outfits for you to wear that are holy and say, like everything you're doing is like the world. It's just outdated. So does outdatedness somehow make it acceptable? Because like, you're like the world outdated. I'm like the world modern. So what's the problem? You know, like, I don't know. This does, doesn't right. make any sense.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. It, it, it speaks to, again, the way that like people can, interpret the passage of time ungracefully, because like, you're absolutely right. And I think this has come up in some of the online conversations we've had with people in reaction to this podcast. Um, we were just interacting with someone and I kind of had to explain this idea that was not accepted by my interlocutor. Um, that is real, like God didn't just dump an entirely new culture on Israel out of the sky instantaneously and change everything. Like they were influenced by the cultures surrounding them at the time, they were part of their world, their language, their social structures, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. But like, you can't imagine Israel as like this idealized society that God just dropped the full heavenly revelation onto them, and said like oh see now you're going to do everything perfectly and like this is the full revelation of me and and you have no outside cultural influences if you can allow yourself to think that as as a possibility for a second well you're ignoring slavery which was permitted within israelite society and a big part of that was they were still conformed to the world in many ways they were they were conformed to the cultures around them and God had to work with them away from that like it's it's one of those things it's actually I think it's kind of funny that um you know people who would probably not appreciate a culturally diverse mode of expression of worship today can also imagine Israel as the ultimately like fully revealed God's will divine society with no cultural influences because like in both modern and ancient contexts you're ignoring the horrors of slavery just in different contexts entirely um yeah
1: and, and i would say just just as a peasant thought as well like I, I i do find ideas like that interesting because if if that were the case right if if we were to say hey israel had the greatest expression of what it means to worship the, the way god wants to be worshiped israel did it um then what that would mean by extension is that we Adventists need to abandon all of our Eurocentric hymnal traditions and attempt as best as possible to approximate a, a Near Eastern ancient Jewish way of worship. And that includes their music scale and you know the, the their sounds the unique sounds that they brought to it their dances their, their their way of dressing and and interacting um when they you know were in the presence of god uh, if we yeah. were to go down that route and say they right. they reached the standard it's like well i mean europeans didn't show up for like thousands of years after so we need to like yeah. go back and be like the jews but clearly that's not what the bible yeah. is is saying. And people make the same exact mistake when it comes to Adventism. Like I hear, you know, sometimes from conservatives, this rhetoric, like God has shown us how to worship. And it's like, yes, there are some principles in the writings of Ellen White that speak to to worship. Um, And Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that in the next episode. And that's cool. But for the most part, nothing in Adventism is really Adventist. You know, like no. our, our most of our hymns aren't written by Adventists. We've got hymns mm-hmm. about the Sabbath that are actually for the original author talking about Sunday. You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. so much our, our hymns, our architecture, um, our our structure, uh, even even our board of business meetings, we use the we use the language of corporate, you know, I- institution. Uh, like yep. nothing that we have is really fundamentally 100% Adventist. to us. Yeah it, yeah. it all came from somewhere else. And and we just sort of, you know, like built on it. So this idea that Adventism sort of dropped out of the sky, that God mm-hmm. just dropped it out of the sky with this like perfect thing that no one ever heard of is, is a betrayal of, of history,
0: really. Yeah, it, it ignores the actual Adventist history, which is this massive influx of other denominate people from other denominations and other christian traditions pouring into millerism at first and then the adventist church subsequently um yeah it's interesting so what um have you ever have you heard of a show called adam ruins everything it's a youtube series i have not actually okay so it, it's kind of a, co- a comedy youtube series i um i can college humor is the the studio that produces it but basically this guy it's his thing he he he's kind of a social mythbuster not so much a scientific myth mythbuster sometimes but like you know common urban legends he he exposes them and he has this whole special he did on um like this this talk he gave on millennials and generations and the idea that like generations don't exist and that it's just like a marketing ploy that was made up in recent history to like divide people artificially by age so it's it's interesting i don't know if it's the most scholarly thing i i don't treat it as like a a serious source it's it's mostly for laughs but there is a quote that i got from there that i love that he quoted from this guy named douglas adams um and it's it's mostly about technology but it, it applies i think to Why, in a way, actually, you could think of worship and music both as technologies, if you use a broad definition of technology, but here here you go. I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reaction to technologies, or, and this is my addition, just new things in general. So check this out. One, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a natural part of the way the world works. Two. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. So far, so good. Three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Um, that's, uh, that is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's I so think funny because
1: I just turned 36 today. Oh, wow. Like today, You do not look birthday. at it. I don't oh I don't. I mean, I've you know, I'm i I've I've got good genes. Um but um Where did you go you know I just turned 36 today and I started out my entire day just like pouring over this metaverse thing that's coming at us. And I'm like, what is this thing? You know, and I was telling my wife, I was like, by the time they master this thing, I'll be too old to care. But it's right. it's so funny because um that's so true. You know, it's like there is there is there is a sense in which and and this isn't just reflected in in church history or, or christian history this is a human thing it's human to mm-hmm. be suspicious of the new it's human to criticize anything that's new pet peeve of mine really big pet peeve of mine is when when a when a movie comes out that's like a remake of an old one right mm-hmm. um and people automatically assume The old one's better. They haven't even seen the new one, but the old one's better. Now, granted, most of the time, if you watch them both, you'll see, you'll say, Okay, yeah, the old one was, you know, it was it was it it had better character development or whatever. You know, like that does happen. The new one isn't always better. But my pet peeve is when you've got someone who hasn't even given the new one a chance and they're already like, Oh no, the old one's better. It's like there's this automatic assumption that if it's a if it's new, There's no way it can approximate the glory of the old. Now that can be true, but it's not necessarily true. So it's a pet peeve of mine, right? And that happens in the secular space. So this is a very natural human sort of thing. What Mm -hmm. we do in the church is we baptize that, Mm -hmm. which for me, I think is driven more, again, by nostalgia at best um, and by pride at worst. We just baptize it in theological jargon in order to make it sound sacred. And then we leave younger generations or newer generations feeling like, no matter what we do, we, we can never, we, we can never produce anything that is accepted, unless it's exactly like what our parents and grandparents had. Um, yeah. And that's a real tragedy for a lot of young people I, I've I've known young people who have left the Adventist church, not God, they haven't left God, they've left the right. Adventist church and joined other churches. Because their creativity and their gifts are valued. Whereas in their home church, it's like, it doesn't matter what I do, unless I'm like playing old hymn staccato, like no one values what I do. It's, it's unholy, it's evil, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw this even just going back to the days of HMS Richards, when he started radio evangelism you know, the attacks that he got radios of the devil, you know, and, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And we should be different. And don't you, you know, the radio evangelist now radio evangelism is normal. And then TV evangelism faces the same thing. Social media evangelism faced the same thing. It's just the same Mm -hmm. repetition of human pride, and control and coercion. And that's in the worst case, I think there are, you know, natural human tendencies, you know, like our, like you mentioned earlier, existential fears as well that are at play. But we really have to think seriously about that and not just say, "Hey, old is better than new, and I'm just going to interpret the Bible and church history through that sort of carnal lens
0: mm-hmm. i'm I'm giving a mindful eye to our time, and i'm I know oh, we yes. have to cut off soon. Uh, there's a couple things I wanted to share, but. Uh... Go for it.
1: I'm going to give the closing thoughts to you because I do, I do have to go to bed soon and apologize to all the listeners. We, we, we had to do this at the best time that we could. Max's partner is still asleep. So he's had to keep his voice down. My partner has to get up at four o'clock in the morning because she is a crisis support worker Um, and it's 10 o'clock at night here. So I got to wrap this up soon, (laughs) Yeah, but it's kind of the busiest time of the year. So we just had to do it when we could Um, But give, give me your closing thoughts there, Max.
0: Yeah. Okay. A couple. A couple little things that I think will be helpful. One is more of a tidbit, and then I'll give like some actual, uh, my actual closing thought that I think will be helpful. So I've got this book here. I'm actually struggling to even find the author's name on it. It's so 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 old. I think it was written in like the '60s or something. Um Dude, that thing looks pro- ancient, man. Yeah. It. It, it looks it, it like the looks kind worn. of book
1: you'd find in like some library tucked away in London somewhere.
0: Yeah. Uh 1962 is what this says. Um, Holt Holt and Reinert. No, uh Reinert and Winston Holt, but I think that might actually be the oh no, Charles Etherington. There you go. Charles Etherington. Um, and it's it's a book called Protestant worship music. And it is again just a trace through history of like Christian worship music with a focus on Protestantism. And there's this quote in here, a section that I've found really fascinating that talks about the idea of the gospel hymn. It just, I want to make the musically specific claim um, statement and that the idea of hymns is ancient, because a hymn, in its strictest theological definition, is a song that praises someone, right? But the songs in our book called the hymnal, one, not all of them are hymns in that sense, because not all of them actually praise God directly. A lot of them are storytelling, or a lot of them are like moralistic. But two, the style of hymn writing has changed over time. And we just take it all for granted that this collection all represents the same style. But the hymnal is full of tons of different styles of music. This is a Protestant um, writer writing about this, um, and you he's read that, getting Max.
1: Before you read yeah. that, can I just jump in really, really quickly and mm-hmm. quote a line from the book *A Survey of Christian Hymnody*, mm-hmm. which is another historical sort of book tracing the history of him and all of that. I just I'll never remember. I'll never forget. Sorry, I'll never forget when I read the opening lines of the very first chapter of this book, <laughs> where it basically in no one, you know, you know, um, how do I put it in uh, without without hair on the tongue? Specifically, traced the concept of hymnody and hymnness or hymning um, is is an ancient Greek pagan practice. And I was just like, holy cow, like hymns are pagan. Anyways, that's what I wanted to say. All right, go.
0: Well, I mean, and if you really think about Acts seventeen, like Paul quotes from hymns to Zeus right and incorporates them so that's that's a whole thing right um so this is this guy talking about protestant hymn writing in the 1800s and um so i'm just going to read a few little sections of this here on the other hand a great many writers of hymns and tunes no doubt impressed by the popularity of the rollicking camp meeting hymns so talking about like big tent revivals but camp meeting ooh, took a definite step in that direction both referring to what came in the paragraph before both words and music lacked the vitality that had marked earlier colonial hymnody, the late 19th century gospel hymn reflected a disturbing self-centeredness. While one would hesitate to call it self-idolatry, certainly the individual had become the focal point and his welfare, the be-all and end-all." It was not to be expected that such a shifting of emphasis from God to the individual would inspire great hymns. The best of the gospel hymns are blighted by this altered perspective. The poorest are mere doggerel, written in a sentimental style which often borders on the maudlin and with refrains calculated to drive home the main theme, their hooky, right? Um, The tunes are seldom Yeah, the tunes are seldom more worthy than the words, the melodies lack character, the rhythms are of the toe tapping varieties that seldom suit the words, and the harmonies are elementary, like this is a guy in the 1960s, criticizing the 1800s, right? So you can tell how much he is conforming to a very traditionalist stand on music, and then he starts listing names. Although gospel hymns found favor chiefly among people who were familiar with the camp meeting background and among splinter groups from longer established denominations, Many tunes by William Bradbury, P.P. Bliss, William J. Kirkpatrick, W.H. Doan, G.F. Root, and others are to be found in the hymnals of more conservative denominations who would not have tolerated them at one time. Such hymns can attract only the uncritical. By every standard by which a hymn can be judged, they are poor, and support for them would be weakened if the people who sing them would examine them more thoughtfully. Now, that is scathing. But I just wanted to point out, like, you listen to something like that and you're like, wow, that is vicious. That is just, he is tearing apart this style and these composers. This man had the audacity to say, William J. Kirkpatrick. Mm. Do you know who William J. Kirkpatrick is? I don't. You do. You just don't realize that you do. Because William J. Kirkpatrick was a hymn writer. And let me tell you some of the hymns he wrote. And I want you to keep in mind the description that this guy just bad, the melodies are dumb, the rhythms are just like toe tapping nonsense. And it's all self centered theology. You ready? A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, away in a manger. Jesus saves, lead me to Calvary. My faith has found a resting place. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. (laughs) Blessed be thy name. Hallelujah. Amen. Um, give me thy heart, Lord, I'm coming home, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Um, the Lord is in his holy temple and several more like that. That's William J. Kirkpatrick. That's who this guy is saying is a bad hymn writer who writes just like drivel for the unwashed masses. Wow. That's intense,
1: bro. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And he's wow. saying if conservative denominations who have this guy's hymns in their hymnal would think critically, we'd take his songs out of the hymnal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We Jesus. have a messed up perception of what our style of worship represents in history, what our style of whatever occupies in the social space of like the history of Christian worship. Cause it is just like a. <laughs> Yeah. When you look at it, like that, that is shocking that someone would say the author of those hymns was a bad songwriter. Because quite mm-hmm. frankly, every one of those songs I just listed, Who's certified bangers the across yeah, yeah. the board. Well, yeah. They're absolutely. all great. I love all They're of like those songs. Heavy
1: favorites, bro. I, I love yeah, them. Too. <laughs> absolutely. I
0: love those songs. Um, I'm I'm straight up offended, actually. But uh
1: <laughs> well, it just goes to show you that
0: nothing's changed nothing's changed nothing has changed nothing has changed at all it's just
1: i we just keep going in circles and every few 10 20 years we find a new thing to attack with the same spirit Mm -hmm. the only thing that changes is the target the spirit remains the same the spirit of criticism and the spirit of division and the spirit of you know nitpicking in here splitting and yeah it stays the same that's absolutely yeah. insane yeah go on
0: um i will give you kind of like my final thoughts here because i know we have to wrap up um but this is an example that has really stuck with me since i've been writing this and looking at my sources here tells me that i've been working on these ideas and writing these ideas down since like 2019. so that tells you <laughs> how long i've been occupied on this but in 2019 um one of my favorite pop songs that came out in the secular world was a song called Take What You Want by Post Malone. Um, So the entire cast of the song was Post Malone, Travis Scott, who admittedly is a bit of a firecracker uh, figure in the uh, music industry right now, but I mean, whatever, this was 2019, and Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne, for those of you who don't know, Ozzy Osbourne is the, basically the the father of heavy metal music. He was the singer of Black Sabbath for a long time and then had his own solo career after that. If you don't know who Ozzy Osbourne is, you're probably not tuned into the conversation about modern music because he's a very, yeah. very significant figure. But um, there was, I can't remember if it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Metal Sucks or Metal Injection, but there was a popular like metal website like a blog that ran a story about him a couple of years ago, where basically a photograph surfaced of Ozzy Osbourne, where he wasn't wearing the typical like very circular he's normally wearing, and I guess oh, he didn't the, the have glasses, his hair, right, like the, yeah, like the the, the round yeah yeah his like signature look of like those circle sunglasses right, and you could see his eyes, and his eyes were clouded and gray, and his hair was gray, and he wasn't elderly man and they were like oh my gosh Ozzy Osbourne looking I'm like bro what do you what do you of course he like dyes his hair for public appearances and of course his eyes are going gray he's 70 years old heavy metal is for 70 year olds right like you forget like how long ago it was that this style of music was pioneered it's like really really old people music Mm. right and so like a lot of actual comments that I saw reacting to that article were like, give him a break. Like, yeah, he's actually an elderly man. Why don't you respect your elders a little bit? Like give him, give him a break. If he wants to look old, let the man look old. But um, I think that if you look at the, and this is me giving like quote unquote worldly examples of things that I, I admire Um There are examples of people in the world who adopt this like really, really shallow, really reductive, really dismissive attitude towards anything new. You know, you can actually find um, video footage of Snoop Dogg and a bunch of rappers his age making fun of modern rap, making fun of trap music, making fun of like what people call mumble rap. And they're like imitating it, but not saying words. They're just... And they're like, and it's like, y'all are also rappers and people hated what you were doing when you were coming out. And now you're like, That's oh, right, this, yeah. the young guys, this stuff is terrible. Or, <laughs> um, you know, Corey Taylor, the lead singer of Slipknot says he hates most modern rock music. um. Gene Simmons, the bass player and one of the singers from Kiss. Everyone knows who Gene Simmons is, but he, for a long time, has been crying out in public, rock music is dead. Rock is dead. It's not good anymore. It's all dead. It's all gone. None of the new music is impressive or good in any way, right? And he's, I mean, if you've seen Gene Simmons in public, if you've seen any footage of him, he's just like perpetually scowling. He's just perpetually cranky, just perpetually. In the world around him, and like anytime he was in a headline on anything, it always seemed like he was just like being cranky about something. So I just think it's really interesting that you can have a worldly example of, you know, the world is full of Gene Simmonses and Ozzy Osbournes. Hmm. The Gene Simmons is perpetually scowling and says, "Why were the former days better than these?" Speaking not from wisdom. And then there are the ozzy osbornes of the world who are willing to do a song with travis scott and post malone hmm. willing to do a rap song yeah the chorus on a rap song there's a video there's video footage of a performance of that song where it's just post malone and ozzy osborn but uh you know ozzy comes out on the stage he's literally on this like this throne that like mechanically like turns out to face the audience and he's sitting there singing. And then Post Malone walks up to him and helps him down. And then you realize like, Oh, dude, like Ozzy Osbourne actually needs help like coming down from his seat. He's an old guy. And then you know, Post Malone is like, running around like hyping up the crowd doing his thing. He's hyping up the crowd. He's like, waving his arms in the air singing the song. And the look on Ozzy Osbourne's face is just priceless cuz he's like clapping his hands he's waving his hands around he is grinning like like it's the best day of his life and this dude has been in the music industry for like decades you know he's a 70-year-old man like he's into his 70s now right and he looks like he's having the time of his life and like Him and the guitar player and Post Malone, they're all hugging each other. They're having a great time. They're just like celebrating, making something cool together. And the generational gap is massive. And for sure, this is not really Ozzy Osbourne's style of music. This is not not the sound of what Black Sabbath was doing in the 70s. This is not the sound that he grew up with. There's like 808s and like electronic drum production. There's tune on everyone's voices, <laughs> but like whatever he's there and they found a middle ground between like his style and these rappers style and they had fun with it and he looks like he's having the time of his life. And I'm like, bro, the world is really full of Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne's like you are either going to be the kind of person who approaches the now with this outlook of outrage and offense and anger and defensiveness, or you're gonna be the kind of person who is like, wow, new things are happening. I would love to be a part of it. And the young people today, they can show me a way to be a part of it. Even though my style is still different, they can incorporate me. I can still be part of the new thing. I mean, I mean, you wanna talk about hip hop, the, the essence of hip hop production is taking old records and sampling them. You know what I mean? Like taking something that was recorded back in the day, back in the jazz era, back in the funk era, back in the soul era, flipping it, adding some different percussion, adding a different spin to it, and boom, you've got a new song, right? Hip hop is a beautiful example of how something new can be reborn and reborn and reborn out of something old over and over again. And I think that there's an incredible wealth of beauty and riches in what is traditional to our hymns, what's traditional to our mode of worship. And I think that this idea that like, we're just importing things from other denominations, and we're just importing foreign influences into Adventism, I don't think that's true at all. We are as young people being influenced by what's happening in other denominations. But we perform their music Adventistly. We really do. And we do bring our own things and our own presuppositions and our own attitudes and our own dispositions to that music when we play it. And I think that in my time as a worship leader, I've seen tons of Adventists who are my age and younger, bringing the hymns to life again, revisiting the hymns, reinterpreting the hymns, livening up the hymns, but they're still keeping that tradition alive. And, and something new is constantly being reborn out of what is old for us. So I think that my challenge to older generations would be to say, Have you looked at yourself? Are you living in the past out of a defense mechanism? And are you willing to open yourself up to the excitement and the newness and the vibrancy of collaborating with younger people of working together with younger people? of doing things creatively, revisiting that inner child that still wants to survive inside of you, because that's an option. And I don't think there has to be an intergenerational war. I don't think there has to be an intergenerational conflict. The point is that in Christ we are one. The point is that we can work together. The I really honestly feel today that if, if Paul were to write Galatians all over again, he would say, Not only is there no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, but I think he would say there's no young and old in Christ Mm -hmm. because like the, the young are growing up into wisdom and the old are being renewed and remade into like youthful vigor in Christ. So, you know, obviously not everyone has to do everything, but I think there's way more middle ground for us to meet on than we realize. And across generations, we have way more in common than we may realize. And that is my thought
1: amen amen bro thank you so much for sharing that and um as we wrap this episode up i just want to throw in because i had a a bonus episode i did a few weeks ago on different resources that people could tap into to read up um more on this uh on on this conversation there's one that i forgot to mention and you just reminded me of it because the book was written as a defense of contemporary christian music by Mm. an author who admits very early on in the book that he does not like contemporary Christian music. Um, and so for me, this was one of the things that really, uh, I didn't agree with everything in the book, but it was certainly something that really moved me mm-hmm. to have someone who says, I don't like this style of music, but that's not a justifiable reason to, to, to uh, demonize it or to reject it. And mm-hmm. I support my kids and I listen to it with my kids and I, I don't really enjoy it. But I'm there with them and I'm on this journey with them, you know, and I Mm -hmm. want to appreciate what they appreciate. Uh, The name of the book is um, Joyful Noise by Ed Christian. And you can Mm -hmm. find it on Amazon. That's uh, Joyful Noise by Ed Christian. Um, Yeah, really good book. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time. So make sure you keep tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it. And uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week.